This is Generation Justice, a multiracial project that trains youth to harness the power of community through media, narrative, and critical consciousness, broadcasting from the rightful lands of the Tiwa people. I'm Barbara Ramirez. Tonight, on this special edition of Generation Justice, we are so happy to feature a very special project, Black Story, Black Song, and the creator of this educational video project, Rashan Ahmad. Here is DJ member Elisha Cage with Rashan Ahmad. I am so happy to spend this time with Rashan, who is an MC, producer, DJ label owner, an internationally touring musician who has combined his stories and stance on social, political, and cultural issues via the spoken word. His career as a recording artist spans close to two decades. He has released six studio albums and toured over 35 countries. Rashawn is also a cultural worker who is rooted in racial justice and community. He has worked with youth and community organizations from Brazil to France, Oakland to Morocco using hip hop, art, and culture as a tool for education and community building. In his hometown of Santa Fe, New Mexico, where Sean has served as a youth mentor, organizer of an annual back to school and food drive, and has facilitated fundraisers for various classrooms. He is currently working on a new album, was voted best DJ in Santa Fe in 2020, and is a promoter for a storytelling event. Black Story, Black Song is made up of eight video stories, as well as a curriculum designed for middle and high school students. All of the presenters are African-American New Mexicans and experts in literature, art, science, hip hop, New Mexico history, poetry, African ancestry, and civil rights. We will have Rashawn Ahmad share just a bit of each of the video stories with us tonight. What a great way to learn about Black history. Rashawn, welcome to Generation Justice. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Can you please tell us more about yourself? Wow. I mean, you said a whole lot right there, um, which is really, it sounds so crazy, actually, to hear you say all those things. Um, because to me, it's all kind of encompassed in hip hop, which is, I guess, my culture in the background of, or the foundation of all this, honestly, of of all the things that you had mentioned. Um, I've been really blessed to, at this point, um, use words um, to travel around the planet, to make music and to um, do a lot of things that I just never even imagined. And a lot of this comes from like, when I was growing up, a lot of the music that I listened to, um, especially um, when I was growing up in Mid-City LA was just, it was music that had this message in it and I was just kind of dancing to it. And one of my favorite quotes is, if I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution, right? And that whole theory of, in your art, in your music, in your presentation, like whatever it is, like putting putting some um, some real good just information inside of something that already just feels good is what I've been trying to do for, I don't know, decades at this point. You know, it's trying to make music, make art, make presentations that um, that first of all, just feel good or that look good or that make you like, at least want to be like, what's that? And then maybe like the third or fourth or fifth time, you'll catch a message or have some sort of understanding of like something a little bit deeper. But um, that, that's kind of the, the core of what I do. I live in Santa Fe. I've been here for like 10 years from the Bay Area, from Oakland. Before that, I was in Boston. 
before that, I grew up in LA and I was born in New Jersey. So kind of been switching back and forth and coast. And I just really love it. Love it here. Um, New Mexico is one of my favorite places on the planet. So I just feel blessed to be here. Yeah, you know, it's good to have somebody like you, you know, uh, you're more than a DJ to people. You know, you're an influencer, uh, you know, a leader. Um, you're a great example, especially in New Mexico. You know? right so on. it's a good thing what you're doing, not just for you, but for the community within Santa Fe, New Mexico. Mm. Man, that means that means the most. Thank you so much for, for saying that. It's, you know, I, I grew up in L.A. and you could never see how how smoggy it was unless you went up to the mountains, you know what I mean? Unless you kind of got out of the, the fog. And so a lot of times I just be in my own little world, in my little house, like creating, making music, making plans, but I can't really tell what, what it looks like to anybody else. You know what I mean? So it feels really good to hear that for real. Yeah, you know, and everything you do is influential, especially these projects. You know, when I listened to it, I was like, Wow, you know, some, most of them mentioned some important things that you don't really hear, especially in public schools in Albuquerque, you know, talk to us more about your project, you know, Black Story, Black Song. Yeah. You know, a big reason is because of what you just said. And, you know, when I was in school, when my pops was in school, it's like we got the same um, beautiful messages about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., about Rosa Parks that's kind of where it stopped. You know what I mean? I mean, maybe I got something about how like Malcolm X was the enemy of Martin Luther King or something. And like, it's just like, and, it, and, it, and honestly, it's crazy to, to think that black history happened in America by Americans, but we get a whole, we need a whole separate month. We can't celebrate it like history. Like black history is US history. It's American history. And it's crazy that it's seen as anything else besides that. And so, um, you know, I often think that fortunately or unfortunately, Black folks are in this, have this tradition of passing this baton along, right? Like our, our ancestors pushed it a little bit and then we pick it up and we push a little bit more and then we do whatever we can. And then, we, and then you know, it just keeps going like that. And so I'm like, what, what can we do, especially after this last summer with the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor? It's like, okay, the world is looking it's it's Fe it's February Black History Month. Like the world can is going to care, and you know I've been on this planet long enough, unfortunately, to to see that I don't know how long this is going to last where people care about Black folks, honestly. And so I'm like, well, maybe we can do something right now while people are looking to get into the schools and to just show more sides of ourselves, right? To show other stories of the um, African American experience, um, to show that. Also in New Mexico, there are black people here. You know, a lot of people like to invisibilize black New Mexicans by saying that we're not here um, and we are here. And so, so, so for it to be black led, um, to be produced here in New Mexico with black artists seemed really important. And um, also just to make it easier for the teachers, for the educators, it's, it's a virtual world right now. A lot of folks are on Zoom, just to have some, some different con content for teachers to share and for um, students. Um, or anybody, for that matter, to kind of dive into. Yeah, I feel you. I really do. You know, it's hard being Black in America, especially mm -hmm. in these times. Um, it's just, it's crazy how you have to hear other stories from other people mm -hmm. when you should be taught it in school. New Mexico history, world history, and 
most of those topics don't include black people. Right. That's why your videos were so, you know, they hit me real hard because mm -hmm. it sucks that we have to hear about three people, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Rosa Parks, when in fact those people are important, yes, but there's other black people that were important as well. Yes. You know, so it's hard listening to stuff like that, especially as a student, you know, not a lot of people can relate to this. That's why, you know, it's hard for them to hear us. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, for the majority of black folks too, history in school starts with slavery. Like that's what you, like black people, okay, we were slaves and then we fought for freedom. And it's like, yo, for real, like, no beauty, no joy, no celebration. All It's all struggle. And what about before slavery? So I think that's so dangerous, just that that's the narrative. Not only is it for us who are Black, but just for everybody. Like, it's just a dangerous narrative. And so, you know, a lot of folks may say, oh, this is, you know, for Black New Mexicans or Black folks. And I'm like, no, this is for all of us. Like, it's important that we all have a wider lens of the contribution of African-Americans. Um, because like you said, we have those people. And honestly, we have hip hop, like, and that's what a lot of people see. They're like, okay, this is what black is. And while, you know, your favorite rapper is a beautiful depiction of one kind of black blackness, right? It's not the full lens. And so having just more visions of what our identity is just seems to me like, I mean, to all of us, I think really important. A lot of people have a different opinion on this, but why is it important to you to showcase Black history from African-American and Mexicans? Like I said before, I think one of the reasons is, first of all, to be seen. I think it's really important that we are seen in New Mexico. There's not a whole lot of, I don't know how many Black male teachers, especially you've had in your life um, growing up in New Mexico, right? How many Black teachers in general? They're, we out here, but you know, the, the numbers are relatively low. And so um, to me, just having educators who are older, who are, who are Black in front of youth, and just so people have the experience of not just hearing songs or seeing sports or whatever from Black folk, but they have the experience of seeing a Black man talk about science, a Black woman speak about the history of Black folks in New Mexico, it just seems like, um, as an African-American myself, it just seems like an important thing to do um, in, in pushing uh, more positive narratives, especially for Black folks in New Mexico. You know, you had mentioned teachers and how we don't encounter a lot of African-American New Mexican teachers. You know, it's you don't have to be Black to teach uh, African-American curriculum. You know, a lot of people think just because he's black, he's going to teach about, you know, black history. Like that ain't right, right, right. you know. But if a teacher were to teach this curriculum of your videos, no matter the race, how would you, how do you think they would teach it? Well, um, that's kind of the beauty. And we, we kind of thought about this a lot. And actually, we're fortunate enough to have the state, the PED, at the public education department in the state help with writing an introduction for teachers just just in case like some teachers aren't really sure about how to teach it or making sure that you know a lot of times if there's like 
a black student in the class, the teacher might be like, oh, this is a black thing. Hey, black student, you know about this. And it's like, you don't do that. Um, so there's this, some guidelines or some helpful tips that we have. And there's a sheet on the website that kind of can walk teachers through that. We have additional resources or links to videos and links to books and like a lesson plan. So we're hoping that it's pretty easy, but also any teacher can holler directly at me, at us, and we can put them in touch with any of the educators. We can get them any further resources. If there's any teachers that that want to teach this but aren't sure, like we're here, we're here to 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 help with all of that. Like I said, you're an influencer. You know, mm -hmm. you influence young minds. Um, you're a leader. You know, people look up to you. What is your message to New Mexico youth? Um, I, I think it would be just make sure that you know that you are part of a larger family. Um, and I think there's a, a lot of, it, it can feel real isolated um, depending on where you are in New Mexico, right? There, there are some places where there are pockets where, you know, folks have a lot of support and in other spaces, you know, like in Santa Fe, I know like a lot of folks may be the only black or biracial person in their class, you know what I mean? Or, or one of three or something like that. And it could just feel like, you know, disconnected from the, the culture at large of blackness, right? And what that means, what that feels like. And I think it's just important to, for, for young black folks to just know that um, like blackness isn't necessarily all you see or pick up um, through videos and through popular culture. You know, like you are good enough, you are beautiful. We are beautiful and we are out here. And um, you know, it may take a minute um, to, to feel that connection, but, um, but yeah, you're just, you're valuable and we need you. Please tell us about the first stories we will hear in Black Story, Black Song. Beautiful. Um, yeah, so um, I'll introduce the first four. So the first one is uh, Miles Tokeno, who's actually, um, he lives in Albuquerque, he's a community organizer, and he's speaking on the civil rights, mainly of the 1950s and 60s, right? And just telling lesser known stories. And like you said, he, he addresses um, Dr. Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, but also talks about the wider community because, you know, it's not, they, they weren't by themselves, right? There were other folks. And then after that, it's Lucky Daniels, who's a wonderful woman from Taos, New Mexico, who talks about African ancestry and the importance of knowing ourselves. You know, it's difficult as African-Americans to trace their lineage. A lot of my friends can say, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, Italian from this place, or I'm French from the dinner, or I'm, you know, and for me, it's like I'm African-American, um, so she talks about the importance of actually looking into your family's roots. And then there is um, Isatu, who's a um, beautiful soul from Santa Fe. He's um, a scientist who speaks about the contributions of Africans and African-Americans in science. And he actually goes before we even got to this continent. So he goes back to, you know, the motherland and talks about the inventions that were happening on the continent of Africa. Um, and then brings it all the way till now and talks about, you know, the apps that we use on our phones and the contributions of black folks. Um, and then after that is Oriana, who um, is wonderful as well. And she speaks about um, the history of hip hop. You know, just, just that that's a, uh, something close to my heart, but she's, she takes it all the way back and talks about the foundation um, just so that that history doesn't get lost as well, right? Um, it's something that we all, a lot of folks know about hip hop, but I'm like, it's important to make sure we, we keep that history alive. And so Oriana does a great job of talking about the pioneers of the culture. What's going on, y'all? My name is Miles Tokeno. I'm a community organizer, and I'm here to talk to you about the Civil Rights Movement. The Civil Rights Movement is so important to learn about 
because all the work that we do to fight social inequalities today is based on the shoulders of those who fought in the civil rights movement. So what was it? It was a decades-long fight against racial discrimination, racial violence, and segregation. Throughout the 50s and 60s, black organizers and leaders and community members came together to fight to be included in this country. So in my speaking to the civil rights movement, I wanna clear up a couple misconceptions. As, as an organizer, it's really important to be able to highlight these things. So when I think about how the civil rights movement is, is taught, I think about the focus on the individual. Think about Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks, and not to diminish any of the work that they did because they did and they were incredible leaders, but the work took the entire community. It took leaders and organizers, clergymen, and it took people like you and me, right? Where our family members who walked side by side, um, those leaders made the difference to change the hearts and the minds of our nation to say, we as black people deserve to be here, deserve to have the same protections and same access to the resources of this nation. The second misconception that I have is that it was just struggle, and it was just a fight, and it was just violence. I think in terms of social justice, we can get into that mindset where it's only about hard work, and it was. There were so many sacrifices, from people getting locked up, to people passing away, to fight for these freedoms that we have today. But there was also so much more. It was incredible music and songs and worship and art and, and joy as well. And that is such an important part of being able to make change as well, is being able to touch the hearts and minds of, of everybody. And you can't do that with just one way. One thing that I love about the civil rights movement is this phrase that I use today in my organizing. Nothing about us without us. So what does that mean? It means that those people who are making decisions about our lives, about where we go to school, what we learn, about how much money we get paid, about having access to healthcare, that they can't be making those decisions without our input, without us being at the table. Nothing about us without us. And that to me speaks to the passage of the Voting Rights Act during the Civil Rights Movement that allowed our protection and safety to be able to vote. And I think that our inclusion in democracy is such a big deal and that our democracy doesn't work, right? Our society doesn't work without our inclusion and without our participation. So I ask you today to get involved um, by making sure that you're registered to vote. And if you can't vote, make sure everybody in your household is registered to vote. Um, outside of that, you can do a myriad of things as well. You can come together as a community with friends, neighbors, and be able to talk about the issues that affect you and say, we deserve better. And that's what the civil rights taught us, is that in the face of any inequality, we can come together as a community and fight for justice and liberation. there. I'm Lucky Daniels. Um, I'm here to talk to you about African ancestry today. Um, we're going to work to accomplish five things. The who, what, why, how, and where. 
Uh, who? I'm Lucky Daniels. I'm a technology software manager. Um, by day, I manage technology teams that deliver medical devices that save lives. But when I'm not managing technology teams, I'm focused on my ancestry. Um, I've been a genealogist, which is a researcher of my family history for over 30 years. And it's a passion that's very important to me um, because I didn't know a lot about my family history as a descendant of slaves. In 1992, I was losing my grandmother. And as she began to talk about our family history, I found that there were a lot of questions and I needed to know more. And so I began the process of researching our history. Why is this important? For African descendant, uh, descendants of slaves, we don't have a lot of history. We didn't adopt a lot of history. We don't inherit history. And so we have to actively follow our history and research our past to learn more about our families. And so for me, it, this is a part of my story. It's a part of who I am. Um, Katie, here to my left, this is my fourth grandmother, and understanding who Katie is helps me to understand who I am. When you talk about African ancestry and talk about this work, you really want to look at where the clues are. Like, how will we go about finding this information? Um, the good news is that we now have technology to aid us, and that is going to make a huge difference in how we research today and how we'll research in the future. Um, we use tools that are online, but we also use interviews and narratives from our friends, our family, um, our elders, our grandparents, our aunts, our uncles, newspapers, journals, Bibles. We look for information everywhere. It's like the detective work of your family history. It's important that we follow the clues. It's important that we ask a lot of questions. And so you're gonna to need to put on a detective's hat. How? How will we go about doing it? We're gonna use all the tools. We're gonna to start with paper. Um, there are reports that you can print out. There are charts that you can use that make it easy to capture this information. It's not enough to answer the questions. You wanna be able to document your findings because you're going to be using that research to build your family's history from now on. And then we're going to turn to the technology because that's the gift. Um, there are a few resources that we can look at today. And I know you won't believe it, but you're going to find information. You're gonna find relatives. You're gonna find out where they lived and how they lived and how they worked. You're going to find out about your family history. And the more that you do that, the longer that you do that, uh, the more detailed that you are in doing that, the richer your, your history will become. So what I do is I encourage you to be inquisitive about who you are, because this is a big deal. Your ancestry is not just your past, it's part of who you are, it's part of what creates your story, and I challenge you to go out and find it. So the science contributions of black people on the continents of Africa, North America, and Europe are numerous, and many of them date back thousands of years. In the country of Egypt, on the continent of Africa, we find a thriving civilization that existed over 5,000 years ago along the Nile River. The Egyptians created things like toothpaste, irrigation, 
makeup, and surgery tools. Now with these surgery tools, they were able to have an in-depth knowledge of all of the organs of the body, and they even performed surgery. The reason that we know so much about Egyptian culture is because of their invention called papyrus, which we know as paper, as well as black ink. Those two things, along with the hieroglyphs, give us a very good idea about what their culture and civilization was like. Now, the innovation didn't stop once Africans were taken from Africa and brought to other continents. In 1887, Alexander Miles invented the automatic elevator door. You see, before his invention, people had to manually open and close the elevator doors. And Alexander Miles' daughter almost died by falling down an elevator shaft after someone forgot to close the door. So he took it upon himself to figure out a way to keep all riders of any elevator anywhere in the world safe. In 1923, Garrett A. Morgan came up with the idea for the three light stoplight after witnessing a car accident in Cleveland, Ohio. Before Garrett's invention, there was only a red light and a green light. So he figured if he inserted a yellow light, which meant to slow down, then drivers would be able to have a more controlled stop. So now we fast forward into the digital age. Does anybody know what VOIP stands for? It stands for Voice Over Internet Protocol. So if you've ever used FaceTime, WhatsApp, or Skype, you have a woman named Marion Croak, who is a software developer and vice president of engineering at Google to thank for that technology because all of those apps use the voice over internet protocol technology. And during this pandemic, her invention has proven to be very, very useful. So now black history doesn't stop there. The science edition doesn't stop there. Black history is being made in terms of science and other areas on a daily basis. And it may be in a couple of years, we end up talking about one of you during the next Black History Science Edition. Thank you. Peace. I am Oriana Lee, MC, artist, and educator. And I'm speaking to you today about the history of hip hop. Interestingly enough, hip hop wasn't actually called hip hop at first. As a new culture in New York City in the early 70s, it was a way for youth, mostly teenagers, to express themselves, many as an escape from the poverty and gang violence that burdened their communities. Hip hop is a culture and art movement created by Americans of African and Hispanic descent while not exclusively. Hip-hop culture at large has always been inclusive and welcoming of all people who represent the foundations of the culture, 
which has allowed for people worldwide to associate with the hip hop movement. Hip hop has four original elements, also known as founding pillars or foundations. Now a little about each element. DJing, originally called turntabling, which is using vinyl records and two turntables to manipulate sounds and create and play music, came to be known by DJ Cool Herc, who is credited with throwing the first party back in 1973 in the South Bronx, South South Bronx. There, he displayed the unique style of hip hop music that he introduced by highlighting breakbeats, which can be described as the drum solo breakdown often heard in soul and funk music. Herc's innovative flair and fresh style on the turntables would become mad important in the growth of both the B-boy, B-girl, and the MC. MCing, also known as rapping or rhyming, is said to have accompanied the DJ since the very beginning, with party rocker Coke Rock being amongst the first. As originally the person on the microphone to make announcements and occasionally hype the crowd, catchy rhythmic rhymes and call and response, a traditional African-based vocal exchange, quickly became standard and the hip-hop voice was born. Inspired and influenced by jazz scatters, soul and jazz poets, and certain local New York City radio DJs, MCN took often popularity amongst the youth and invited those who were often voiceless to use their voice in a creative way through what is now known as rap music. Okay, so commercially known as breakdancing, or originally b-boying and b-girling, with the B short for break, the name, given by DJ Cool Herc from spinning breakbeats in his classic style and dancers using the music to work out their fanciest footwork to the beats. This became one of the highlights of the parties and dance style, heavily influencing first-generation b-boys like Trixie and Clark Kent with mad crews to soon follow. In the early mid-80s, a number of films documented breakdancing, as the media coined it, bringing it worldwide recognition. B-boying and B-girling experienced a boost in popularity in the early 90s and has continued to grow globally. Now, graffiti writing, also known as graph or writing, given mainstream attention in the 80s is a form of writing using primarily spray paint to artfully beautify public spaces and subway trains. Graffiti writing actually came before all of the other elements in the 60s in the Philadelphia Underground by a writer who identified by the name Cornbread. One of the first popular New York writers was Taki183, known for his colorful wild style art, most often the hip hop style most portrayed in the media, though there are many styles. Jean-Michel Basquiat is one of the most well-known graffiti artists who was able to fully cross over into modern art as a painter. Since the early 70s, Hip-hop has grown a lot. Today, elements of hip-hop can be found regularly used in marketing and media, television and movies, and in every crack and crevice of United States culture. Rap often gets a bad rap, regularly associated with crime, drugs, and big spending. But when you think about the real principles, a culture based on peace, love, Unity and fun has to be of great value in making this world a better place. And isn't that the kind of world we all want to live in? You are listening to Generation Justice on 89.9.
KUNM FM, where tonight I speak with Rashawn Amon. We just heard the first four stories of Black Story, Black Song. Personally, listening to those messages and the stories of the people, it gives you a new lens, you know, especially being Black. Most of the stuff I learned, I never knew. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think people realize what was just said, you know. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of people can relate to it, but I hope they did because deep down, deep down, it makes you mad, sad, you know, happy because you're learning about something that's important, not just to you, but to others, you know, and it makes you realize, like, we had to go through all this just to be here and you know we still have to go through a lot of more other things mm-hmm. in order to be safe you yeah. know and just thank it's you whole lot. It, it's, it's my pleasure and it, it's um like I said before it's good just to hear um some feedback about it um you know and and folks if you know this this is the the audio part but you can head over to earthseedblackarts.org and you can see the videos of these as well um and yeah, I, I agree with you. It's it's unfortunate that this isn't widely taught, you know. But I'm also also give thanks that you know we have the resource. So you know, like I was talking about earlier, this is like that baton, right? It's like it's like we 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 did this video, and now here you are talking to me about it, spreading it to your audience. So it's like thank you, you know, for 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 getting it out there and spreading it. It's appreciated. Can you tell us more about what we listened to? You know the second part of the video. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the next one you're going to hear is is from Naima, and she speaks about Black literature, which is um, so beautiful um, to hear. And she she goes into a lot of the contributions of Black writers, um, a lot of folks that I, I hadn't heard about when I was in school, and some even even to this, this, this day, um, and gives some great examples. And um, that's really awesome. And then Gregory speaks about the Black arts movement that happened in Chicago in the 50s and 60s, which influenced like a whole world of sound and fashion, um, the breaking out of barriers, like we're talking about now, the stereotypes around Black folks or how these folks used um, their music and their art as a collective to, to kind of challenge the way that people listened and thought about Black folks. And then there's Nikisha Breeze, who speaks about um, New Mexico history, which is you know, one of the things I'm super happy about, especially living in New Mexico, um, she's actually a descendant of one of the first black settlements, which is Blackton, New Mexico. And to have her was just really special to speak about um, that and just the role of black folks in New Mexico and our long, long history here, which is, yeah, just wonderful to hear. And then there's Hakeem Bellamy, um, who speaks about the Harlem Renaissance and then like connects it to um, the folks from the Harlem Renaissance that called New Mexico home, um, which is just, once again, yo, it's just, I, I'm, I was just so happy how this just all turned out, especially um, the ties that that I learned about, about how um, how deep it is here for, for African-Americans out here in New Mexico. And so those are the next four you're going to be hearing. Hi, I'm Naima, and I'm here to talk to you all about Black literature. So first, I wanted to start off by saying 
We have always been storytellers. Um, going back to our various tribes and nations in Africa, and that has always been a huge part of our culture and the way that we share history, the way that we talk about lessons and morals, the way that we learn. Here as Black Americans, we have confronted some barriers in being able to tell our stories and have our stories be heard. So that goes back to the sort of start of this country, right? Being brought to this country as enslaved people, it was actually illegal for black people to learn how to read and write. Being able to turn our oral narratives uh, into stories on the page was difficult, as you can imagine. But despite that, we did, right? And thinking about some of the slave narratives you might have heard about from Harriet Tubman, we use these stories not only to talk about the injustices that our people have experienced, but also to pave a road towards freedom. What that means is that we use our stories not only to give our readers pleasure, right? Reading can be fun, but also to connect to cultural and political and other artistic movements that are going on in the country. So I'd like to talk to you a little bit about our history in literature. I mentioned slave narratives, but we also have some really amazing writers from different eras throughout the history of our country. Um, we have times like the Black Arts Movement. So the Black Arts Movement was um, born out of the civil rights era of the 50s and 60s. And in the 60s and 70s, black writers and artists said, integration is really important. Being thought of as being equal is really important, but also it's very, very important for us to create spaces where if we don't have a seat at the table, we build our own table. And so those writers used literature as a way to build narratives about black people that were you know, for us and by us. And controlling the narrative and enjoying and spreading black pride and joy. Thinking about our modern black literature, where are we going? What do we have to look forward to? I think what's really beautiful about black literature is that it's ever evolving. So there isn't one thing that we like to write about or one story that we like to tell. One of my favorite writers uh, who writes young adult fiction, so fiction for you, I encourage you to check her out. Her name is Elizabeth Acevedo and she is a Afro-Latina Dominican writer. She was an English school teacher and she taught the eighth grade. And she asked one of her students who was having struggling a lot to get his reading assignments done. She said, why are you not interested in reading? And he said, Miss Acevedo, it's because these stories have nothing to do with us and they don't care about us, right? The characters um, were not reflective of this person's lived experience. She decided to write stories, for example, The Poet X, which is a novel, but it's written in verse. So it is a, uh, sort of hybrid of poetry and prose um, about teenage black experience. And she's continued to write books about that. And they've been bestsellers and won national book awards. And so um, it's really exciting to see new black literature be celebrated and accepted. The lesson that I would love for you guys to take away in thinking about black lit is not everybody's gonna be a writer, right? We all have our different hobbies and interests, um, but that black literature allows for us to see the things that we're passionate about can lead us to advocating for um, the freedom of our people and also gives us opportunities to build worlds that we wanna see, right? So it doesn't have to be about 
what's happening right now, but we get to imagine futures in which our lives are wildly beautiful and brilliant, right? And I encourage you all to um, focus on that, right? Your stories matter, your voices matter. And whether it's writing or reading or working on a science project or, you know, dreaming of becoming a lawyer, you have the opportunities in those communities to use the lessons of black literature to build a better future. Hi, my name is Gregory Waits and um, I'm going to be talking about the black art movement in, and uh, identity in Chicago uh, during the 60s, um, during the civil rights era and how it sort of aligned itself with that with that time period and why but I think first to um, even talk about it is to we have to look back I think and look at uh, the African diaspora um, as as well as the migrations of uh, African Americans in, in relationship to that then we had this sort of art context, and especially the um, AACM, which uh, catapulted um, in the 60s. AACM actually means the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians. Their idea around uh, that was for them to incorporate experimentation, improvisation, and to also look at themselves from a collective point of view and so in that they wanted to sort of discard the old hierarchies of jazz they were primarily jazz musicians they also um, wanted to sort of celebrate the black aesthetic in a sort of a more total theater approaching and embracing all the arts within the musical context inside of that experimentation and improvisation a very uh, more elaborate language was developed that related more to um, African culture and took on a more Afrocentric sort of approach. At the same time, um, right along with this and right along with this sort of intertwining with the other art forms, you had another group that uh, had come up which was called Afro-Cobra which was the African commune of bad, relevant artists. They saw that um, most of the African images, African-American images, were, were not one that would produce self-esteem in the neighborhoods. You had you know, caricatures and just really poor arch archetypes. Um, that were being represented in the media. And so they wanted to, um, as part of, in, a, in alignment with this whole black uh, power movement that was going on with the civil rights movement at the time. And so there was a, this push to um, identify one's collective through the artwork. And so they took on some principles that um, represented um, that. Uh, they used Kool-Aid colors. Uh, they also use text in their um, in their work um, as so as to further give meaning to the work. The art has sort of expressed that this art that sort of evolved out of it, identity. So identity, I think, is an ongoing and ongoing quest, uh, an ongoing condition that the arts 
um, have the challenge of resolving in in individuals as well as in the collective. Hi, my name is Nikisha Breeze, and I am an interdisciplinary artist, historian, scholar, and researcher on African American history. I live in Taos, New Mexico. For the last 20 years, I've been here, but my family were some of the very first settlers here in New Mexico in the late 1800s. They came with Frank and Ella Boyer, who were uh, coming from the South, where African Americans were the victims of incredibly violent racist crimes. They came searching for freedom, looking for a place that they could live without fear for their lives, where they could raise their children and they could create an entirely new world where black people and black communities were celebrated. Blackdom, New Mexico was founded in 1903 and brought over 25 families from across the country as a part of the great black exodus of the late 1800s. The Homestead Act was enacted in 1862, which gave free blacks the possibility of being able to live on a piece of land, to work that land. They came to New Mexico and as families worked together to build an entire community of black artists, of um, teachers, of soldiers, of people who were all looking to create a new way of life. Blackdom didn't survive very long. Unfortunately, Blackdom, through so many different problems with both drought and uh, with the local economy not supporting them enough, the town eventually was abandoned in the 1920s. This story is not the first story, though, of black people in New Mexico looking for something new. The first black person to this continent came to New Mexico. Esteban the Moor, in 1527, traveled from and through Mexico as an enslaved black African from Morocco. He was enslaved by the Spanish, came all the way into New Mexico to look for what they believed were cities of gold. What they found were the New Mexico Pueblos. Esteban, being a, um, a healer in his own African country, came and brought these gifts of his teachings of healing, of medicine, of plant work, into the indigenous Pueblos here in New Mexico and was welcomed with open arms. Eventually, however, as he tried to bring this energy a little deeper into New Mexico, he came to the Zuni Pueblo and they didn't want to welcome him in, knowing that he was a harbinger of a huge wave of colonization, which would decimate the rest of the country from then until now. Uh, so they did not welcome him, and unfortunately, he lost his life in that pueblo. After that point, New Mexico became, for the Spanish, a central base for them to begin their colonization of the rest of this country. So from the 1500s all the way through into the first slave ships hit in Jamestown in 1619, black folks have been inside, particularly this part of the Southwest. New Mexico history, New Mexico black history is incredibly rich. Our relationships both with the indigenous people of this land, the relationships with the Spanish coloners, both as being enslaved by the Spanish as well as leading 
uh, parties of colonization has been a big part of the New Mexico history. So New Mexico history has been and continues to be, particularly black history, a very layered, very rich, and very in-depth study. Welcome to Harlem by Southwest. I'm your host, Hakeem Bellamy. Now, raise your hand if you've heard the word Renaissance before. Okay, up, up higher, I can see you. Okay, if you didn't raise your hand, not a problem. I'm gonna help you here in a second. Those of you who did may or may not have heard it right after the word Harlem, as in Harlem, New York, but the Renaissance didn't start there. It started in Florence, Italy, and spread throughout Europe from the 14th to the 17th century. So what's that got to do with Harlem, you say? Well, Harlem, New York is roughly 4,153 miles away from Florence. Well, a few centuries later, three to be exact, Harlem had its own renaissance, a black renaissance. In the wake of Reconstruction and Jim Crow, black people moved north in droves in what was called the Great Migration. By 1970, when the Great Migration ended, over six million black people left the South for places like Chicago, Detroit, Philadelphia, shout out to my hometown, and yep, you guessed it, New York City. The Harlem section of New York City is only three square miles. And at the height of the Harlem Renaissance, nearly 175,000 African-Americans lived there. It was the most dense concentration of black people in the world at the time. And these black people, well, they had money, <laughs> just like other people did. And, and this was in a time called the Roaring Twenties, and, and that money became its own awakening. Remember, out of the dark. An awakening in fashion, writing, painting, music, and identity. The first African-American Rhodes Scholar and Harlemite, Elaine Locke, described it as a spiritual coming of age. And the artists expressing this new black became household names, Josephine Baker, Paul Robeson, Zora Neale Hurston, County Cullen, Aaron Douglas, Augusta Savage, Louis Armstrong, Count Basie, UB Black, Cab Calloway, Duke Ellington, Fats Waller, and Billie Holiday. So what's that got to do with New Mexico? Well, other than that some of those artists I just mentioned eventually made their way to a legendary Albuquerque swing club called Chet and Perts, well, Harlem wasn't just a physical place. It was a state of mind. The Harlem Renaissance wasn't just a reboot of Greco-Roman once upon a time in Italy. Long before the 14th century, Africans had communities that flourished with creative activity, just like our very own petroglyphs here. Rock paintings depicting domesticated animals provide artistic evidence of the existence of agricultural communities that developed in both the Sahara region and Southern Africa by around 7,000 BC. In short, we go way, way, way back with this art thing. And just like art doesn't have any borders confining it to one place, neither did this new black identity. New Mexico had its own piece of Harlem Renaissance in poets Anita Scott Coleman and Jean Toomer. Jean Toomer, grandson of America's first black governor, for all my folks in, in Louisiana, is famous for his 1923 masterpiece, Cain. And uh, Cain kind of looks like, if y'all like The Watchmen, I noticed that the cover of Cain kind of looks like, but anyway, Cain was one of the most important books identified with the Harlem Renaissance for its bending of language and its honest representation of black culture, both in the South and 
in North America. And at that time, Toomer spent time in a literary community that grew up around Mabel Dodge Lujan and Taos. And in 1935, wrote a manuscript that went unpublished until 2016 titled A Drama in the Southwest. This time he gives us a glimpse into the social world of artists who sought creative and spiritual renewal in Taos, New Mexico. Taking his knack for writing about people and places to New Mexico, just like he did in Harlem, in poems like 7th Street. Anita Scott Coleman was a prolific contributor to the Harlem Renaissance, and she lived in Silver City, New Mexico from 1919 until 1925. During that time, she published 13 short stories. Much of Coleman's writing focused on the Southwest, the availability of home ownership for African-Americans here, uh, her own Afro-Latino cultural heritage and knowledge of the Southwest in Mexico, which is where she was originally born, in an essay titled Arizona and New Mexico, the land of Esperanza. Published in The Messenger, a popular political and literary magazine for African-Americans, in her poem, America Negra. See if you can hear the influence of New Mexico in her work. America Negra. I am Indian, I am grown old, huddled beside sand dunes, cradled in the lap of a plateau, cacti my shade, sky and land, land and sky, the sky is clear as a mirror, but the land is a painted desert. I need a Scott Coleman. So that's our time. Thank you for joining me, your host, Hakeem Bellamy, for this episode of Harlem by Southwest. Coming back uh, from listening to your project, one of my favorite videos was New Mexico history because you know, I wasn't from here, but I was raised from here. And you know, it's good to listen to somebody talk about things other than what's in the handbook, uh, especially a woman of color. That's important. You know, she said a couple of things, you know, that hit me. And watching it, like I said, gave me a new lens. Mm. You know, it made me view the world from a different perspective. And I'll always take that with me because I'm black. And you know, I'm not taught a lot about my own history, especially in New Mexico. Yeah. You know, I wanna thank you and thank um, all the presenters that were in your project for educating us about history from the African-American lens, you know, especially in the Mexican history. Right on. Thank you. That, like I said, wow, that that means that means so much, and I can't wait to pass this on to the presenters. I mean, they're they're going to be really excited to hear um, to hear that too. And yeah, I'm just really excited that you took the time to to talk to me and to and to present this on your show today. Uh, thank you. Um, if people wanted to find more information about you or about Black Story, Black Song, where could they find you? Yeah, they can. Um, head over to, you know, we're, we have the social media on Instagram at RC Black Arts, and you can go watch the full program at rcblackarts.org. And there you can find um, bios um, on all the presenters and bios on myself as well. That'll take you to my whole website and world of things. Um, and, you know, my name is Rashawn Ahmad. If you go to YouTube, you can Google and you'll see, you know, the, the work that I've done as far as um, being an MC and a DJ. And um, yeah, anybody that, that, that needs to reach out for anything, once again, 
we're here to to help with any any educators that need any additional information. If you want any of the the presenters to come to your class via Zoom, um, any of that, just please give a holler. We're here. Before we end our evening, is there anything else you would like to add? Yo, I really, this is like one of my favorite interviews. Like, Elijah, you're dope. Like, I just appreciate you. <laughs> like, for real, for real, for real. Like, I, I'm, I'm happy that you're out here and that you're doing this work. And I just want to encourage other folks to, um, to, to not only see what I'm doing, but see what your neighbors and your brothers and your cousins are doing. Like, look at Elijah. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you're a role model as well. And so I just really encourage everybody to, you know, not look so far. Like we, like, like I keep saying, we out here, you know, I'm inspired by you right now. So, um, yeah, I just appreciate you and thank you for having, for having me and having this story be here. Thank you. I didn't think I was going to get thank you today, but (laughs) you know, thank you for that. You know, that was, that was greatly appreciated. You know, absolutely. A lot of people tell me I'm a role model and a leader and, you know, it's just, it's wonderful to hear those things, you know, especially somebody that's, really a leader you know the work you do is is great to hear those things right on you you, you shine in elijah i see you it's easy hey. <laughs> you shine bro hey, thank you <laughs> yes, sir thank you <laughs>